Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Pediatric Grand Rounds. <clears throat> it is December 18th, 2019. End of the decade. And say, depending on how you count it, this is the last pediatric grand rounds of the decade. So <laughs> we will return in January, um, I, not on the 1st, but on the 8th, because January 1st is a holiday, as is next Wednesday. So we will see you in three weeks. And in the meantime, hope that you have um, wonderful holiday celebrations. We are welcoming Dr. Shubkin to the to the, to the uh, podium this morning to finish out our Grand Round series, probably appropriately enough as our committee chair. Uh, uh, born in Detroit, uh, native Michigander, uh, Kathy. Oh, you got the term right. I'm so proud of you. I know these things. <laughs> Kathy completed, she, 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 she forsake the Big Ten though and went and received her undergraduate degree at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, made her way up to Washington, to George Washington University for her medical degree, and out to the West Coast for her start of her pediatric training at the University of Washington and Seattle Children's Hospital, where I think she might have gotten entangled with another member of our faculty. <laughs> and um, they both came back to Boston for her to finish her, her residency at Boston Medical Center. Um, started her career with appointments at BU as well as at Tufts Medical Center and BMC, but was back out to the West Coast for uh, the beginning of her career and, and working at University of Washington as a, a clinical professor in their faculty. But uh, we were able to bring the family back in 2008 uh, to, to Dartmouth and Dartmouth-Hitchcock. Kathy is the assistant professor of pediatrics. She is the associate program director for our residency. Uh, I guess we can now say officially certified clinical ethics professional, uh, along with Dr. Uh, Ringer after completing their tests. And, um, and as I mentioned, our Grand Rounds Committee Chair, who is going to be giving an excellent talk. I will apologize. I will sneak out. And given that she is chair, I have a, 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 an appointment at 9 o'clock. So Kathy will conduct her own question and answer session. Be kind to me. <laughs> but um, obviously, you'll be kind. So without further ado, Kathy, take it away. Am I on? Can you guys hear me? All right. Um, so I'm really excited to be here. I put myself on the schedule with Sholene after much uh, hemming and hawing to say, okay, I'm finally going to do Grand Rounds again. It's been a while. Um, this topic about teens' disability and reproductive health access has actually been a big interest of mine for a number of years. And so this Grand Rounds was really a nice opportunity for me to put together a lot of things that I've been working on on the past mm, long time, we'll just say long time, and put it into kind of a cohesive um, format. I take my title from this book, which many of you may know either as parents or providers, called It's Perfectly Normal, Changing Bodies, Growing Up, Sex, and Sexual Health. And I really want to apply that framework to think of the children that we take care of and the adolescents that we take care of here at CHAD those kids with medical complexities um, or disabilities. My only disclosure, well, I have two disclosures, three disclosures. One is I'm a general pediatrician. I'm not a gynecologist. I don't have adolescent board medicine training, but I've been doing this work for a really long time. My second disclosure is I'm the parent of two teenage girls, as most of you know, although one of them who just came home from college reminded me that in less than a year, she will be not a teenager anymore. And then the third one is that many of the contraceptive agents, including long-acting reversible contraceptives, are not FDA-approved for adolescents under the age of 18, even though they are considered the first-line agent for contraception. So what do I want to cover today? The first thing I want to do is just normalize what sexual activity kids are doing and how old they are when they are starting to have sex so that we can normalize reproductive health for our adolescent population. And then I'm going to focus in on three cases to really cover some key topics that are important for families and kids with disabilities, including menstrual management, contraceptive care. And then, as Keith alluded to, a large portion of my job and time now is doing ethics and communication. So I'm going to end with a little bit about the challenges for adolescent confidentiality and consent when you're dealing with an adolescent with a disability who has reproductive health concerns. What I'm not going to cover today, but I think are equally important, are sexual function. I'm not going to cover erectile dysfunction or dyspareunia in adolescents with disability, but it's a big topic that a lot of them want to discuss. And I apologize for ignoring about half of our patient population because I'm not going to cover a lot about male health, except to say that communication and ethics really applies to everybody. So uh, let's see if I can get this clip to work. I'm not sure it will. 
Um, about a month ago, Dr. San Loud and I were in uh, collaborative office rounds that she was running where they were, the case that she was presenting, which was an international consortium of people, was discussing an adolescent with reproductive health challenges who had autism spectrum disorder. And we came out of that meeting and immediately thought of this show. Has anybody seen Atypical? Oh, good. Um, this is Sam. He's got autism spectrum disorder. He's in high school. And he's really trying to navigate the challenges of adolescence. And both of us immediately thought of this kid and some of the challenges that he's facing. Your session with your therapist today. She thinks that I should put myself out there and find someone to have sex with. <laughs> she didn't say the sex part. I added that. Uh, I'm a weirdo. That's what everyone says. Sometimes I don't know what people mean when they say things. Sam, people on the spectrum date, you know. Girls don't really notice me at all, and I'm not great at picking up signals. She's smiling right at you. You need to turn that down, like, 70%. Casey, why does my to-do list say remove stick from the butt? I don't know. But if it's on there, you gotta do it, right? I can't find my work pants. Ooh. Sam's gonna start dating. You and I weren't much older when we met. Maybe it's time for us to take a step back. You wanna know how to get the girls? I'm taking you to Poon City. That's not a real place. Nope. Not doing that. There are strategies I could teach him. I'm not a little kid anymore. I can do things. Strategies are when you get your heart broken. Sometimes I wish I was normal. Hey, dude, nobody's normal. Your son has the same... All right, so I'm going to move on. I think that really encapsulates for me a lot of the challenges that our young people with disabilities face. They want to grow up. They want to be normal children. They want to be normal adolescents with all the joys and challenges of being a teenager in high school. And the parents have to remember that they're really not a little kid anymore. I want to introduce you to this patient. Um, this is Port Angeles, Washington, where Steve and I practiced for a number of years. Um, it's about three hours from Seattle Children's. It's really beautiful. There are ferries. There's ocean. There's the Olympic National Park right behind there. And when we first got there, I got sign out from our senior partner saying, this young woman is going to be probably one of the toughest kids you take care of. She, she was probably about 12 or 13 at the time. She was medically complex with complex congenital heart disease, uncontrolled hypertension, abnormal kidneys, poor kidney function. She had a vaginal reconstruction, a bladder augmentation surgery, a metrophenoff in place. And oh, by the way, she had liver cirrhosis and hepatic disease as well. <laughs> That's pretty tough when my closest subspecialists are three hours away. What she did have was a normal adolescent brain. Again, with all the hopes, dreams, challenges of being a teenager and trying to grow up. To normalize, again, what kids are doing now. By the end of 12th grade, the majority of U.S. teens have been sexually active. 20% of our ninth graders, almost 60% of our 12th graders. Lest all of you think that children today are worse off than we were, for those of us who grew up in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, which is a large portion of this audience, we were worse. <laughs> we had a much higher rate of sexual activity in adolescence compared to teens today. So kids really are making good choices and good decisions. What does that mean, though, for our kids with disabilities? This comes from a video called Amaze.org, which has a great set of videos to talk about adolescent concerns, including puberty. But what does adolescence look like for our teens who are in a wheelchair, who have visible disabilities, or who have non-visible disabilities, who have emotional disorders, who have mental health concerns, who have developmental delays? What does that mean for them to grow up in adolescence? We know that the prevalence of children with special health care needs is a huge part of our, all of our practices. 13% of kids overall have special health care needs, one in five households raises a child with a special health care need. And the prevalence of children with special health care needs is most prevalent in our adolescent patient population, with up to 16% of those kids having some sort of medical complexity. Normal adolescents. We have to get our kids to grow up from these goofy sixth graders to well-poised, hopefully job, right? And the task of adolescent development include that independent living, including adopting peer and self-codes of living, accepting and recognizing who they are, what their body image is, what their sexual identity is, what their gender identity is, having the moral code that they can live by. 
Do we think of the same thing for the kids with developmental disabilities? We know that the kids have to grow up along these lines of development from the sheer biology of puberty to the amazing cognitive changes that happen in the brain during adolescence through kind of the preteen years through early 20s. And then certainly the social and emotional development that many of the kids need to go through. Do we think of the same things for kids with disability? Do we think of our kids with disability having intimacy and relationships, sex? Do we think of them going to a coffee shop, sitting down and writing a term paper, or maybe working on a project? Do we think of them parenting and having a family in the future? Well, we did a pretty good job in pediatrics. We've done a great job over the past 20, 30, 40 years. And many of the kids who didn't live to adulthood 20, 30, 40 years ago are now living into adulthood. And we need to think about all these tasks of adolescent development and adult development that these kids want to attain. Cystic fibrosis, as Dr. Gwill has pointed out in many of her talks, is kind of the paradigmatic example of kids who live now. The median survival rate is now up to 44 years of age, which means that half of adults with cystic fibrosis have full or part-time jobs. Almost half of them are married or in long-term partnerships, and a third of them have a college degree. We did a good job in pediatrics, which means that we have to address the reproductive health concerns that they have as well, not just getting a job, but thinking about all the concerns that they might have in adolescence. So just to go through some of the reproductive health concerns, puberty. So puberty is usually the first sign of adolescent development for most kids. And depending on the condition of puberty, they may have either early puberty. That's especially true in the kids with neurodevelopmental disabilities or spina bifida, where up to 20% can present with early puberty. Or delayed puberty. Dr. Gwill's patients with cystic fibrosis often present with delayed puberty. So being aware, depending on the disability, of puberty and when it presents and the challenges of puberty get to be important. For girls, once they achieve puberty and menarche, menstrual control gets to be a huge challenge for a lot of them. We'll go into menstrual control in a little bit. We have to think about not just contraception and preventing an unintended adolescent pregnancy, but thinking about future family planning for these kids. I have a friend um, who has a complex medical condition, and at age 15 when she was diagnosed, she still remembers, she's the same age as me, she was told, I don't know if you're ever going to be able or should ever be able to have children. And she holds that to this day, despite the fact that she's a parent of three beautiful boys. So the words that we use make a huge difference in people's lives in the future. And then finally, I can't talk about kids with disability without talking about the real risk of abuse that these kids face. So I borrowed this slide from Dr. Susan Gray, who is an adolescent doc at um, Boston Children now at UVA. Keith, she says hello, by the way. Um, people with disabilities have a rate of rape and sexual assault that is seven times the rate of the general population. Families know that. The kids aren't necessarily aware because they've got disabilities, but we should know that as providers, that the risk of abuse is real, and we need to be able to counsel families about that risk of abuse. So are women with disabilities getting care and appropriate reproductive health care? The answer is probably not. This is a study published out of, again, Boston Children's, out of 188 women with cystic fibrosis. These were the reproductive health concerns that they had, everything from perceived pubertal delay to chronic yeast infections, because they're on a lot of antibiotics all the time. This one's embarrassing. How do you talk about this if you cough during exercise? probably cough during sex. That's probably pretty awkward to talk about both with your doctor as well as with your partner. Hey, don't worry, we'll have sex, but I might have a really bad coughing fit during it. So again, these are real concerns that people have. We also know that the same patient population is not getting the appropriate care that they are supposed to be getting. The kids are in C, in, with CF are in blue. Um, the general population is in orange. Contraceptive counseling. Less than 5% of kids with CF in this patient group were getting appropriate contraceptive counseling. They weren't getting pap smears at the right time. They weren't getting pregnancy tests at the right time. If anybody wants to read my slide really closely, you will also notice that the general population is not getting the care either when only 25% of typically developing kids were getting contraceptive counseling at the appropriate time. But certainly our kids with disabilities are getting it even less. So what's the challenge? Well, talking about sex is awkward. 
And it's hard. And it's hard for families. It's hard for kids with disabilities. It's hard for providers. It's just a hard topic for a lot of people to talk about. And then the two things that we think about with adolescents and people with disabilities are kind of these contrary ideas. One is that they're childlike or asexual, and that they're not going to grow up to have intimate partners, long-term relationships, that they don't have the hopes, dreams, and desires that other adolescents have. Conversely, we also think of some people with disabilities, especially those with neurodevelopmental disabilities, with mental health disabilities, with autism spectrum disorder, as having predatory behavior, masturbating at inappropriate times, watching pornography at inappropriate times. You can see how Sam, in a typical, that smile that he had to the girl while he was trying to flirt, it really come across as maybe predatory or inappropriate if he keeps that smile up, the girls that he sees that he thinks are cute. And then obviously time. None of us have enough time. I don't care if you're a primary care doc or a specialist. Um, we don't have enough time. If your entire CF visit is spent talking about all sorts of things from enzymes to the new medications to the recent hospitalization, talking about reproductive health access, may not be possible if you're dealing with a whole host of acute medical concerns. But it's not just pediatricians who have this challenge. OBGYNs, they spend their entire day talking about reproductive health access and reproductive health issues. They also find this patient population pretty challenging. Um, in this fairly old study now, but I think it probably holds true that up to 40% of OBGYNs also report discomfort taking care of this patient population, with 20% feeling significant apprehension the barriers are the same as ours, lack of time, insufficient reimbursement. I never get reimbursed for spending 45 minutes talking with a kid about her reproductive health access and inadequate knowledge. All right, I'm going to switch gears for a second and talk about three cases um, to highlight some of the challenges that these kids face. I'm going to talk about menstrual management, contraception challenges, and then communication and ethics. But first... I have to give you a primer about birth control, because whatever you guys learned back in sex, seventh grade, maybe ninth grade, it ain't your mama's birth control, and there are a lot more options than there used to be back in the olden days. So these are all the, this is a website that I use a lot called Bedsider, with all the different options for contraception that are available for women today. I would say that it's been decades since I've seen anybody use a diaphragm or the sponge, though, but all of these are great. Um, just to remember that long-acting reversible contraception, the IUD or the implant, are really considered first-line agents for adolescents for contraceptive choices. All right, I'm a general pediatrician, so I think in broad sweeping terms. So we're going to go through kind of the big categories of contraception and just make sure we understand a little bit about how they work and what they do. So what's in them? Estrogen and progesterone. So two hormones are in these. The standard birth control pill, which almost everybody in the audience would be familiar with. This is the patch. The patch gets placed on a weekly basis onto the skin and gets changed. At week four, you take the patch off and have a withdrawal bleed. And this is a vaginal ring with estrogen and progesterone that's inserted inside the vagina. Um, with, you take it out and have a withdrawal bleed and put another one back in. So those are the three potential problems for all of these. Well, these all require uh, somebody to actually use it on a regular basis appropriately which is why they're no longer first-line agents for contraception, because they require user input every day or every week. For kids with disabilities, estrogens and progesterones in particular may have some complexity. We'll talk about those in a little bit, but includes increased risk of uh, venothrombolic events, um, increased risk of interaction with medications, especially anti-epileptic medications. And then if we're asking somebody to place a vaginal ring or to give a patch, again, if you think about our kids with disabilities, that might not be possible for some of our kids, depending on their disability. All right, moving on. What's in it? Just progesterone, no estrogen. So it decreases, but that does not eliminate completely the VTE or, or clot risk. There is the progesterone-only pill. DMPA is the shot. You get in, come in for depo every three months to get the shot. And then again, these two are really considered the first-line agents, either an IUD or an implant. The IUD can be used, depending on the brand, from five to 10 years. And then the implant is used for three to five years to, prevent, to provide contraception. Problems with all of these, there are some medical concerns. Um, Depo is associated with weight gain. 
It's also associated with decreased bone density, maybe associated with a little bit of increased clot risk. Clearly, IUDs and implants, they're great, but they require procedures. So if you have a kid with a neurodevelopmental disability or significant anxiety, it is a procedure in which you need to place it and then remove it. For the IUD, if you can't feel your strings or if you can't tell if you have a complication because you have spina bifida and you don't have sensation below here, that can be a challenge to know whether or not the IUD is causing any problems. And then finally, what's in it? Nothing. Well, not nothing, but no hormones. So condoms obviously can be used. They also require user use every single time. Um, for those of you who, who guys or who don't know, is that we have latex-free condoms in our clinic, boxes and boxes and boxes of them. So any kid who has a latex allergy, it's okay. Come to our clinic. Our rock, Rob, or back there can show you where they are. We give out a lot of them in clinic. Um, copper IUDs are a great option for women who can't use hormonal contraception for any reason. They are associated, though, with an increased rate of abnormal bleeding with them. And then sterilization has its own host of ethical challenges that we'll talk about at the end. <laughs> All right, so the first case I want to go through to talk about menstrual challenges. This is a case um, that's kind of an amalgam of several different cases that I have, but it's a more recent version of this. This is a 12-year-old. She's premenarchal. But period is imminent. It's going to happen sometime in the next year. The challenge is that she's partially verbal. She has some language, not great language. Um, and it took her years and years to toilet train because she would smear feces on the wall. She would paint herself with it. And it took a lot of time for the mom, the school, for caregivers to really train her how to use the toilet properly. And mom is like, I, there's blood. It's going to come out. It's going to be... I, I don't know what to do. It's going to be all over my walls. I can't deal with it. It's going to, she's going to regress. It's going to be scary for her. Oh, and she's really sensory, so she's never worn underwear, ever. So how are you going to put a pad on if you don't wear underwear? A little bit of a challenge. So the menstrual challenges are huge for some of our kids with disabilities. From something as simple as the hygiene to the manual dexterity of changing a pad or a tampon, and if you don't have the manual dexterity, it means you're asking somebody else to do that for you. And that's a pretty intimate procedure <laughs> to happen. For my patient, limited understanding of normal blood. Blood, when you cut, it usually hurts and it's scary because you're hurt. So having blood come from your vagina once a month, that's pretty scary for a lot of kids. And being able to talk with them about what that means to have normal blood is important. And then finally, um, I'm thinking of particularly about a patient I care for now who uh, is an ex-preemie, um, cerebral palsy, intellectual disability. She has one-word phrases. Um, and her parents spend a lot of time thinking about, is this her cramps that are bothering her? Or is she constipated again? Or is her spasticity getting worse and she really just needs a dose of Ativan because she's getting tight again? And so they spend a lot of time kind of thinking, is this PMS or dysmenorrhea, or is something else medically going on that is making her cranky and irritable and fussy and unable to communicate? All right. Now, a lot of families will ask, well, to period or not to period? We don't have to have a period. And so some of our patients do need to, be, do need to go to amenorrhea. When we're thinking about the goals of period care, is it that we need to just regulate for regularity, that it's okay to get your period, but you need to know on the fourth Tuesday of the month in the afternoon you're probably going to get your period and then you can plan for it? Is it that you need to decrease flow because these kids, for whatever medical condition they have, are really having heavy clots, uncomfortable periods, and if we could just manage the flow, we'd be okay? Is it that we can have a period, but we can do it episodically every now and then? Um, there are birth control pills that are now designed to have a menstrual cycle only four times a year. Or because of their medical condition, they have a coagulopathy, they have something else that we need to move to complete amenorrhea. So dealing with periods is kind of twofold, including both the educational component of it. For my patient with autism, really spending a lot of time educating her to the best of her developmental ability about what normal blood is and that it's not scary and that maybe we can teach her how to wear underwear so she can wear a pad and that somebody can help her change it. So doing that educational component. And then for some kids, we need to go to medical control of their period. Third, consider, again, menstrual regulation or amenorrhea. Um, being aware of the rates of amenorrhea are really different depending on which 
type of birth control or contraception you use. So for this one, continuous uh, combined oral contraceptives. So if you use your birth control pill every day without taking your placebo, about 50% will achieve amenorrhea within one year, but 25% will have intermittent spotting. So it's a little bit of a trade-off. Progesterone-only pills and implants have much lower rates, somewhere around 20% after one year of use. Depo is probably the most reliable, but not perfect to achieve amenorrhea with rates of about 50 to 70% of amenorrhea between one and two years of use. And then finally, the progesterone IUD is associated with rates of amenorrhea between 20 and 50%. Um, being aware that there are several different types of IUDs and some of the lower progesterone containing ones, such as Skyla, have much lower rates of amenorrhea down actually closer to progesterone-only pills or impacts of maybe 15 to 20%. Um, so again, choosing a method for amenorrhea that the family can use, that the kid can tolerate, that doesn't have side effects, and being aware that none of them are really guaranteed to go to complete amenorrhea. A word about the uterus. There are some recommendations, or people will suggest that you can do a surgical procedure such as endometrial ablation or hysterectomy. Our OBGYN colleagues will tell us, and this is true for every major OB organization from the US to the EU, Australia, New Zealand, that endometrial ablation doesn't work, especially in teenagers that has a much higher failure rate. And then hysterectomy to control really difficult menstrual cycles may be an option for adult women who don't have any other options, but for an adolescent has the unintended side effect of sterilization. And again, there's a whole host of challenges with ethics about sterilizing people with disabilities. All right, so no endometrial ablation, no referrals, if you guys don't know, I'm going to point out Dr. Evans. She's in the corner. She's our adolescent gynecologist. Um, don't refer to her to a patient to do endometrial ablation or hysterectomy in a teenager. She will not do it. I'm pretty sure. Okay. So for my patient, we spent a lot of time on education. The family had actually asked if we could stop her menses before they started, before menarche. And both myself and I remember speaking to Dr. Evans about it. Both felt really strongly that she had to have at least one normal menstrual cycle to make sure everything from the hypothalamic pituitary axis through her vaginal outflow tract worked appropriately. We allowed her to have one menstrual cycle and then um, put her on a continuous birth control with a consideration at some point to put her under a sedated procedure for an IUD. But that's gonna be a big decision involving a lot of conversation with the family and with the teenager about what to do. All right, medications. Many of our kids in this audience are, or that we take care of um, are on medications. This is a fantastic study that was published in 2016 in pediatrics with Stancil out of a large academic Midwest um, uh, children's hospital about teratogens, those medications that we know cause birth defects. In this study, there were 4,172 encounters that include discharge encounters as well as outpatient encounters in which 1,700 teenagers and young adult women, this was 14 to 25 years of age, had 4,500 teratogens prescribed. What percentage of these kids do you think had contraception discussed? Come on, somebody, how? 15. Oh, you guys are even more cynical than me. A quarter of them, 28%, was documented in the EMR that somebody at least talked to them about birth control. They didn't necessarily prescribe it, but they talked to them about it means only 11% actually had a documented contraceptive agent prescribed or documented in the chart. Who are these people who are prescribing so many teratogens? Which one of us? Derm. <laughs> yeah. Neurologists. And obviously our hemoc colleagues. You guys got it. So neurologists, you guys win. Looking at Alice back there. With the most highest frequency of teratogens, Topamax or Tempiramate um, having the highest, certainly methotrexate for both our hemonc patients as well as our rheumatologic patients, um, and then a whole host of other medications are prescribed. Um, for the kids who got contraception, there were a couple of factors that increased your chance that you would be able to get contraception. One made sense. If you were an older teen, you were much more likely to have contraceptive discussed or provided. If you were white, you were much more likely to have contraception discussed or provided. Little racial disparity. And then finally, 
if the federal government put in regulations that required the providers to do an extra layer of administrative burden, it also increased the likelihood that you would actually have contraception discussed or provided. In 2015, they changed the labeling category. And then for our highest risk medications that we use, think the lidomide in the 60s, there's a risk evaluation and mitigation system. This is what it looks like for Accutane. So Accutane is used for severe acne and is a teratogen. So in order to get Accutane, both the provider needs to register with the iPledge system, the patient needs to register with the iPledge system. You need to have a documented negative pregnancy test on the chart and two forms of contraception documented. And both provider and patient need to document that every single month. The pharmacy is not allowed to dispense the medication until both those documentation pieces are in place. So if you put in a really stringent barrier like this, you get contraception most of the time. All right, questions about that? Yeah. In this example and in the previous example that the uh, obstetrician was discussing contraception, mm -hmm. uh, the investigators looked at the gender of the provider. That's a Good question, and I don't know the answer to that, but that would be a good one. I haven't seen anything when I was doing my literature review about whether or not having a male or female provider made a difference. I don't know, and I don't want to presume that the women are doing it better because I don't think we are. All right, antibiotics, trick question. Everybody who's picked up an antibiotic bottle ever in their life always says, like, beware, contraception may not work, use a backup form of birth control. Which antibiotics actually decrease the efficacy of contraception? Anybody? Nope, nope. Residents, do you guys remember? Nope. Josiah, I don't have candy to throw at you. Um, Rifampin and Rifabutin, that's it. Anything else is okay, so don't be stressed if you're prescribing doxy or cephalosporins or, or any of the medications that we use, um, except for some antiretrovirals, antifungals, antiparasitics, antibiotics do not decrease the efficacy of contraception. So it's on every labeling system, but it's only rifampin or rifabutin if you are prescribing those. Okay, back to my patient. We're sitting out in Port Angeles. She's got medically significant medical complexity. How do you choose which contraception is okay for her? So back in, again, the olden days, as my kids would say, we had, did we have dial-up there? I can't remember. Barely. Ella's shaking her head. She's like, we didn't have the internet then. Um, so uh, we didn't have really great access to online resources. My specialists were three hours away from me. I spent a lot of time on the phone calling my colleagues at Seattle Children's, who were my mentors. I think the world of them. None of them thought this kid was going to grow up. None of them thought about her reproductive health access. I remember actually in particular speaking to her urologist who had done her um, vaginal reconstruction. I'm like, can she have sex? He's like, well, I don't know. I'm like, you made her vagina. I don't know either. Um, so now we live in 2019, end of the decade. We download the app. So the app is super easy to use. It's published by the um, CDC. And this is the U.S. medical eligibility criteria. Um, you can search for contraindications depending on the condition. Do you have lupus? Do you have IVD? Do you have a family history of breast cancer? So you can look by condition to see which contraception is available, or you can look at the method. Is it okay to have our gynecology colleagues place an IUD in this patient, or is there a contraindication to the IUD placement? The medical eligibility criteria breaks it down, categories one through four, from no restrictions to completely contraindicated. I do have a few patients who are using a category four contraception because that was the only method that they would choose despite known contraindications for them. Um, ACOG has published this, this um, position um, statement in 2019, Use of Hormonal Contraception in Women with Coexisting Medical Conditions. It's a really great overview of some of the things that I'm talking about. And then I'm going to focus on just three specific topics of medical complexity, um, just to give you a flavor of kind of some of the decisions we need to make. So as I noted, DEPO is associated with bone density, as Keith will remind us. 
30%, 30 to 40% of your bone mass is put on during adolescence. So if you have an underlying medical condition, whether or not it's complex renal disease or immobility that decreases your bone density, we have to think carefully about whether or not Depo is the appropriate agent. In 2004, there was a black box warning put out on Depo that says we should not be using it in adolescence for more than two years. Within the next several years, every major medical organization from the World Health Organization the Society for Adolescent Medicine, to ACOG, who just reaffirmed their statement in 2019, said we really need to continue to use DEPO because it's such an effective birth control for many kids, and you just have to be able to discuss the risk and benefits of bone density use. So even though the black box warning kind of had this hard and fast two-year rule, I think every major medical organization has said you just need to do some counseling and risk-benefit discussion with your families. Keith. So because the data is still inconclusive about how much bone loss mm -hmm. and how much is reversible actually yeah. after you stop. And pregnancy is far worse for bone health than... We're going to talk about pregnancy a lot because a lot of, them, a lot of these contraindications need to be compared not with nothing, but with the risk of unintended pregnancy in adolescence. Because unintended pregnancy in adolescence, from bone health problems to all the other comorbidities of pregnancy in adolescence, that actually needs to be your comparison. So thank you for that lead-in. Yes, Jillian. Is there anything you can do while you're taking the depot? So we do counseling for it and recommendations that you really do have adequate calcium and vitamin D intake. Um, and again, for those kids who can move, get them moving, because moving helps your bone growth as well. Again, that doesn't apply to some of our kids with in a wheelchair or who have spina bifida or something else like that. All right, clot risk, venothrombolic events. Um, are a big concern with contraception, especially with estrogen-containing birth control pills. And then we have conditions, again, whether or not it's IBD or lupus with antiphospholipid antibodies that increase your clot risk at baseline. So to Keith's point again, the comparison needs to be over here to pregnancy. So at no risk, the risk for the absolute risk for otherwise healthy teenagers and young adults somewhere between 1 and 10 per 100,000 have a risk of a spontaneous clot. If you add on birth control pills with estrogen, it increases your clot risk, the relative risk increases, and the absolute risk goes up to about 20 per 100,000. Once again, the comparison is against pregnancy, which increases your clot risk to 60. All right, so I want to keep that in the back of our head as we're talking about clot risk. When we look at relative risk with estrogen-containing birth control pills, your baseline risk is here in blue. In orange, it's when you increase it, the risk with a combined oral contraceptive. So clearly, the relative risk to have factor V Leiden or prothrombin mutation increases your relative risk. So does long-term travel, obesity, and smoking. Pregnancy, again, at the highest over there. But if you have factor V Leiden and you add a birth control pill to it, it increases your relative risk to 30, by 30. So it's a 30-fold increase. That's a pretty big deal. And then we have a lot of conversations about, is it just the estrogens or is it the progesterones? All right, the residents know that physiology isn't my strong suit, so I'm going to try to say this correctly, is that estrogens increase the hepatic production of globulins, including things like factor 5-7 or factor 7, um, factor 10, and some of the other um, thrombo, thrombogenic. See, I'm not good at the physiology part. I'm just going to hand wave that part. Um, so estrogens, we know, increase your clot risk. So again, a combined oral contraceptive inc increases the relative risk by two and a half. Progesterone-only pills and progesterone-only IUDs do not seem to increase clot risk at all. Um, we note that there isn't a lot of evidence for the implant, for the progesterone-only implant. Dr. Chaffee, whenever I've talked about this before, reminds me that one of the worst clots she ever saw in our institution was after a Nexplanon patient placement within about a month after an exponent patient. It turns out, and Dr. Chaffee will also remind you of this, that history, history, history is the most important because it turns out that the dad had a lot of very devastating clots, but neither the mom nor the patient communicated that to her or to the provider who put in um, the Nexplanon. So progesterones can increase your clot risk. Um, Depo increases it probably to about the same rate of the combined oral contraceptives, although that's a little bit controversial. And then finally, again, pregnancy. 
unintended pregnancy in teenagers is generally not a good thing. So we need to compare it to pregnancy risk. All right, so how do I choose? I can't remember all these numbers in my head. I can't remember the specifics about different things. So you download the app. So if you download the app and you look at DVT or pulmonary embolus, you can look through all these categories, whether or not you have a history of it, whether or not you actually have a DVT right now, whether or not it's just that your mom had a DVT when she was pregnant. So you can look at all those options, and then you get to this screen here, which gives you the specifics. So this screen has known thrombogenic mutations, factor V Leiden, prothrombin mutations, protein CNS, and antithrombin-3 deficiencies. And you can see that all of the methods are green, except for combined hormonal contraception, so against the estrogen-containing ones. So they really are all options, even for kids with known thrombogenic mutations. All right, so download the app because I can't remember anything or everything. So just download the app and look things up. A word about seizures. Epilepsy patients, again, are pretty common both in our inpatient and outpatient setting. And there are a lot of challenges with taking care of adolescents and young adult women with seizure disorders. From the mere effect that puberty has on seizures, puberty is a time when seizure frequency often worsens or you see seizures for the first time. Some women have catamenial seizures or menstrual-influenced seizures where they get seizures more frequently during their cycle. And finally, anti-epileptic medications are really challenging to use with contraception because both estrogens and progesterones can be affected by the contraception, and then lamictal in particular can be the decreased efficacy based on the, based on the contraception. So I talked to Dr. Morse about this, and this is, these are words of wisdom from him. It is something to be aware of, as patients don't put two and two together, and PCPs often put epilepsy patients on the pill, seemingly without discussion or awareness of the effects of seizure medication on the seizure threshold. And then he also notes that avoiding pregnancy and planning for contraception <coughs> also needs to be discussed because of the deleterious effects seizure medication can have on fetus and brain development. So his final conclusion, contraception is VIP in the epilepsy patient. So it's something, again, that we need to be able to talk about and think about with our patients with epilepsy. Back to my patient sitting in Port Angeles. Again, back in the olden days, we actually didn't have a good form of an IUD at that point. We had Norplant, which for those of you who remember, was five things that got inserted in the arm. You couldn't put them in. You couldn't take them out. They were just awful. Um, so there really weren't very many options for her, and she chose to use a barrier method for contraception, latex-free, because she actually had a latex allergy. So that was a little bit of a challenge and really hard to find anybody in our small town to be able to take on these challenges from a reproductive health standpoint. All right, this is one of the favorite pages I have ever gotten from working in this institution because I am, as you know, a general pediatrician. Nobody calls me stat for anything. But I got a call from Dr. Kim, and it was somewhere around 1 o'clock in the afternoon. I have this memory that it was in the afternoon, like after case conference or something. And this is about communication and the challenges we have about communication with our teenagers and with their families. She had a, a teenager in the infusion suite who um, was getting her chemotherapy, lived with her boyfriend, and she looked at Dr. Kim and said, oh, I thought you said I couldn't get pregnant while I was on chemo. And Dr. Kim was like, I said you shouldn't get pregnant. <laughs> So she pages me, literally. I wish I had taken, like, a screenshot of it. Because it said, I need a next one on stat. I'm like, Julie, what are you doing? And so this kid's infusion finished at 2. She came up at 3, and we put a next one on in that afternoon. So communication, especially around reproduction and adolescence, is fraught with all sorts of challenges. Um, this is from a position paper written by Cora Bruner, who's out of Seattle Children's Hospital, about sexuality education that children's and adolescents with and without chronic health conditions and disabilities benefit when they are provided with accurate and developmentally appropriate information about the biological, sociocultural, psychological, relational, and spiritual dimensions of sexuality. So the learning domains that kids have to um, learn as they're going through um, adolescence include the basic cognitive part, the basics about puberty, the basics about sex, the basics about how to care for your body. And then there's the affective component of education, 
about what the feelings, values that your family has, attitudes about relationships, dating, sex, sexuality, have to be communicated to our kids as well. And then finally, it's the real behavioral challenges that a lot of kids face. How do you make a decision? How do you talk about consent? How do you talk about good decision making? And you can see from Sam, from the atypical series, he may have had the cognitive, he was a smart kid, he may have understood the biology of puberty and sex. He may have even understood his feelings a little bit, but he certainly didn't have the behavioral or communication skills in order to have an intimate relationship with a teenager, with another girl. And again, we talked about all the reproductive health concerns that we need to address. But most of the time, when one of our patients come to us and says, hey, I'm thinking about having sex, or more likely, I've already started having sex, um, this is how we feel about it. And we say, I don't do that. It's not my job. So whose job is it? Is it my job as a PCP? Is it your job as a specialist? Is it the parent's job? You just say, oh, just go look it up online? Or do you have the schools do it? I would say having taken care of kids for a long time in their individual education plan for kids with disabilities, I see a lot of toileting plans, a lot of how to train kids to use the toilet appropriately. I don't think, Keith, have you ever seen an IEP that had sexual health written into it? None, never. Um, but it is an important aspect of education. So issues of sexuality, ensuring privacy, promoting self-care and independence, and advocating for reproductive, adequate, comprehensive reproductive health education is all of our jobs, really. There are online resources. This comes from the Florida Department of Developmental Disabilities. These are very specific ones. This comes out of Boston Children's, the Center for Young Women's Health, specifically about cystic fibrosis. And then ACOG has this really nice interactive site um, for clinicians serving women with disabilities. So again, you can go through and look at some of the medical conditions that you might face. From the Brigham and Women's Hospital, they have kind of a, um, a mnemonic to help us remember to talk about it because if you don't start the conversation, you can't have the conversation. So starting the conversation is first. And then it's all the things we talked about, managing fertility, managing contraception, managing periods. I'm teaching our adolescents, especially those with disabilities, how to access appropriate adult care, including reproductive health care, including women's health care, how to talk about relationships and consent and conversations, and then the mechanics of treating and preventing STIs. Again, my patient in Port Angeles taught me a lot. She taught me a lot about communication as well, because at some point, her mom found out that I was having these conversations with her then 16-year-old about what type of birth control could be used. And her mom, I still remember, came into clinic and was pissed, absolutely furious with me. You don't understand, Dr. Shubkin. I thought she was going to die when she was a baby, and they told me her heart didn't work. And I thought she was going to die again when we had to airlift her to Seattle Children's Hospital because her kidneys were failing. And then two years ago, just before you moved here, Dr. Shubkin, we had to airlift her again because she had esophageal varices and almost bled out from them, and she almost died. And you're talking about sex with her? How dare you? She's my kid. And that, she can't do that. And so it took this mom and I a long time, but actually we came to some really nice understanding together because we both came to the shared understanding that we had the same goal for this kid in mind, that we wanted her to grow up and be a healthy, happy young adult, that we understood, although mom didn't like it, that she was going to do some experimentation in adolescence. Because again, remember, she had a normal brain. She was cognitively okay. She had a lot of stuff like from the neck down, but her brain was working just fine. So she did want to experiment with smoking, with drinking, with sex. And we wanted her to be able to make some really good decisions and we wanted to protect her because if she got, had an unintended pregnancy, she was going to die. If she wanted to get pregnant in the future, if that was a possibility, it was going to have to be a really concerted effort with the high-risk OB team at University of Washington, with her cardiologist, with her nephrologist, with her hepatologist, in order to possibly have a safe pregnancy. We didn't even know that at that time. So this mom and I really had to work through a lot of things to be able to come to some shared understanding. Which leads us into the last bit about ethics, because confidentiality and consent 
is really challenging in this patient population. There are challenges to confidentiality, which Keith can speak at at length, whether or not it's the EMR or the billing system, whether or not it's we give full access on MyDH to these patients because they have such medical complexity, and then they look up to see that I've put a Nexplanon in their 17-year-old's arm. So there are challenges with EMRs and confidentiality. There are developmental concerns and medical concerns. For my patient in Port Angeles, she was mad because she's like, you don't understand. I need to know, because if you put her on some form of birth control that has a complication with all her host of other medical conditions, who's gonna know that besides you? I need to know that, I'm her mom, I need to protect her. So there are both developmental and medical concerns. Having been in pediatrics for a long time, this hasn't happened very frequently, but it has happened. And I know, I was trying to remember this morning, I definitely remember one case possibly two cases in which the parents said, she's never going to get pregnant, shouldn't get pregnant. She's like a two-year-old. I know she's 20, but she looks like a two-year-old. Let's just take out her uterus. She hates her period. She shouldn't be a parent. Obviously, hysterectomy has the unintended consequence of um, sterilization. Does anybody know who this is? I don't have candy to throw at you either. <laughs> Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes was the Supreme Court Justice, this is Buck versus Bell, 1927. Um, Virginia at that time had a sterilization law um, uh, for those who were, quote, feeble-minded. So Carrie, who was age 18, had an illegitimate pregnancy at age 18. She was deemed incorrigible and feeble-minded, placed in an institution, and forced to undergo a sterilization. This is what he said in his uh, decision. It is better for all the world if instead of waiting to execute degenerate offspring for crime or to let them starve through their imbecility, society can prevent those who are manifestly unfit from continuing their kind. Three generations of imbeciles are enough. The Supreme Court case has not been overturned, and it continues to be cited as justification for the procedural process for sterilization without consent. So the most recent citing that I could find was in 2011, um, in which a young woman had a, a coerced sterilization procedure done. And this case was cited as the reason why she shouldn't have had the sterilization done because they didn't follow Virginia's 1924's procedural process for sterilization. Which leads us to reproductive coercion. We think about reproductive coercion in, the terms, in terms of interpersonal relationships and intimate partner violence, where a partner controls the reproductive um, uh, aspects of another person's life, whether or not it's getting birth control, carrying a pregnancy, becoming a parent. And so we think about that really in terms of one-on-one -on -one interactions and intimate partner violence. But we really also have to think about it in terms of our institutional or systematic coercion of women with disabilities, women of color. We have a shameful history in our past for forced sterilization. But even today, we have a lot of presumptions, as I said in the beginning, about people with disabilities, about what they can and cannot do. And um, we all know that sometimes we pressure those kids and those teenagers to make decisions about their reproductive health that may not be in their best interest, but we don't really know that. So moving on to reproductive justice, the corollary to reproductive coercion is to really think about reproductive justice. This is from a position paper from Lawyering for Reproductive Justice, where we really acknowledge the dignity and autonomy of people with disabilities to be able to make the reproductive health choices that are most important for them. And that they don't use a framework, when we think of ethics language, they don't use substituted judgment or best interest standard. What they say is that we need to be able to give them supported decision making to make reproductive health choices. So again, I just wanna think about that as we move forward into future directions. What does this all mean for us? Well, first, like anything, there needs to be improved research about disabilities, about sexuality, about reproductive health access communication, so that we can provide the best access for adolescents and women with disabilities. And it may be something as simple as having an exam table that somebody with a wheelchair can get up onto and have a pelvic exam. Or it might be that all of us in this room are comfortable talking about reproduction and sexuality for our patients, to provide them with that access to make the choices that they need. Um, from 2018, knowledge is essential for informing disability-specific sexual education for adolescents, interventions to decrease stigma amongst providers, 
and ideally to encourage more inclusive sexual health practices because we know that reproduction and sexuality are inherent part of being an adult and our kids with disabilities are now growing up to adulthood and so we need to support their whole development as they grow up. And with that, I want to thank you for their time. And here is a list of resources um, that are easily available about all sorts of things, whether or not it's AAP, ACOG. Um, this is a really great one about autism spectrum disorder, talking about the birds and the bees. Um, so lots of really, really great resources for families and for us. And with that, I'm happy to take questions. Paula. I just had a question in regards to guardianship oh. and um, population. Mm -hmm. um, is it still um, with guardianship? There are stipulations, and one is sterilization yep. in order to have your um, adolescent sterilized. Mm -hmm. so, um, you have to go to court and they make a decision. Is that still? As far as I know, I am not a full disclosure, I'm not a lawyer. As far as I know, two things is that sterilization and sterilization procedures in the state of New Hampshire, I don't know Vermont, on the state of New Hampshire, you cannot go, undergo a voluntary or involuntary sterilization before the age of 21, whether or not you're a male or a female. Um, I was talking in clinic yesterday, somebody had a 19 year old parent who was interested in a sterilization procedure who's not allowed to have it. Um, and then for our adolescents with disabilities, as far as I know, Becca, do you know? Um, I think guardians still have to go to court for the sterilization procedures. Um, after, the, 21. after 21. Yeah, it's not covered until above 21. And then guardians, there's, I have uh, in a different document I can show you later, there's a list of states where there is a mandate that the courts make that decision and then a handful of states where it's a little bit different. And I think we're in the states in the state that it still requires a court decision for a guardian to, uh, to take their um, adult to a sterilization procedure. Celine. So how, how do you address the clearly cognitively impaired, but with strong sexual drive, so that you do feel like they're not making even a good, as good a decision as in uh, cognitively, whatever the normal means? Yep. I think it's challenging. The case that I said at the very beginning that Dr. San Laud and I, um, that she was facilitating this actually international conversation about was a young adult with autism spectrum disorder, a female who had inappropriate use of pornography and was watching pornography all the time because she was so curious, but from a almost mechanical standpoint about what sex was, um, not about relationships. And she was using pornography in the same way that I, for those of you who take care of kids with autism in the same way that some people use Disney cartoons to help teach little kids about affect and feelings and communication. And so she was using pornography to try to figure out relationships. Um, and I will say this international consortium of developmental um, people from across the world were really stumped on that question. It's a lot of education, education, education about when it's private, when it's appropriate, that sexuality and feeling the urge to masturbate or to have sex is not abnormal. In fact, it's healthy and something that you should embrace, but really putting that kind of um, barriers around when it's appropriate and how to do it. I, I can't say there's an easy answer. It's really tough. Pat. Um, a couple of things about compliance. Mm -hmm. um, if people use barrier urge people to consider prescribing Kaya, the new diaphragm. Mm -hmm. It's easier to put in, it's easier to take out. Um, it's better designed for um, the shape and dexterity required. Pat, do you have any of your adolescent patients who are using it? I can't even get them to like go see, you know, have somebody actually look at their vagina and like, I just a body part. I haven't, um, I haven't had much success promoting Kaya to anybody. Um, diaphragms have really fallen off the radar, but I, I guess I would encourage people to include that in their list of options that they present to people. Um, Good point. Adolescents. You know, I mean, if you're going to depend on your male partner to give you condom every time, we know how that works. <laughs> um, and let's be clear, with no with no barriers, with no contraception at all, for adult women who are having sex, 85% of adult women will have a pregnancy within one year if they're using no form of contraception right. at all. The other point yeah. that I wanted to make is that um, given that we know that it is safe to have continuous hormonal contraception, um, 
Yeah. Change it out every 30 days. And so for uh, the kids with medical complexity who can tolerate a NuvaRing or can place it, we will use that as well. We'll also use the patch continuously as well. And there are tricks to the patch use for the kids like with autism spectrum disorder who, um, who pick at things. You put it like right there, can't really get things right back there. So in the interest of time, I want to thank everybody. Um, please let me know if you have any other questions. Happy to go back.